to us. So Romans chapter 2, starting in verse 17. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent, because you are instructed from the law, and if you are sure you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. Whereas it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. For circumcision indeed is a, val- is a value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if, you are a man, so if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Lord, we come to you now and we ask that as we delve into this passage of scripture that you would be our teacher. Holy Spirit, guide me in the words that I speak, that they'd be... uh, your words, plain and simple, and then whatever commentary I may add to that, that it would be in accordance with the truth. Speak to each of our hearts as you know we need it, and you do. You know every heart. So we pray that you would take the scripture and implant it in our lives and produce within us what you desire from us. To the glory of the name of the Lord Jesus, our Savior. Amen. So we are in the book of Romans, Paul, Paul's extended explanation of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that gospel which is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and then the Greek, in other words, to everyone. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God or is revealed, or right, how to have a right relationship with God is revealed from faith for faith. Just as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. That's the theme of the letter, chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. And then Paul explains in the first major section of the letter, which begins in chapter 1, verse 18, and goes through chapter 3 and verse 20, why we need a right relationship with God, why we need the gospel. And that is because we're sinners, and we stand condemned before God because we are sinners. And that doesn't matter whether you're a pagan, immoral, unbeliever who's rejected the truth of God revealed in creation, or you're a very religious person who is not trusted in Jesus Christ. You still are a sinner condemned by God, equally condemned. There's no difference in God's eyes. There's no partiality with him. In in chapter 2, Paul is addressing the the self-righteous religious person 
in chapter 1, verse 18 through the end of chapter 8, he addressed the pagan, immoral, unbeliever, idolatrous person who, to exchange the truth of God for the lie, worship the creature rather than the creator, and then God gave them over to the lust of their hearts and dishonorable passions and debased minds to carry out very wicked sins. Chapter 2, Paul uses what is the literary style of diatribe where he kind of sets up a straw man who makes an argument and his, the straw man's argument is, I'm better than them. I don't deserve God's wrath because I'm not as bad as them. And Paul is going to use that straw man as an example of anyone who is self-righteous in their religion. And then he is going to tear down their arguments. And that's what he's been doing in chapter 2, verses 1 through 16. He basically laid out the principles of God's justice, his judgment, which is his justice or his judgment is according to truth, according to the facts, what he knows about every individual. Secondly, it's according to works. Now, that is not saying that we get into heaven by works, but God's judgment is based on what a person does. Now, what a person does is based on what they've done with Jesus. And so he's, he talks about those that will be rewarded with eternal life because, not because of their works, but because they have believed in Jesus. It just showed up in their works. And then the third principle of God's judgment, he said, was that it's impartial. <laughs> it's impartial. It's the same for Jew and Gentiles. the same for irreligious and religious. It's the same for man or woman, rich or poor, political, non-political, red or yellow, black and white, or the same in his sight. And all are condemned if they have not received the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. Now, in chapter 2, verse 17 through the end that we've already read, he is laying out very clearly who he's talking about. It is this Jew who is very religious. He's going he's gonna to deal with them according to their rituals, their religion versus righteousness. Now, I don't know about you, but I have certain rituals that I follow most every day of the week. And when I say ritual, I just mean it's not a religious ritual. It is things that I do over and over and over again. You all have those, right? You do certain things the same way every day or most every day. For example, almost every day begins at 5 o'clock a.m. for me. My alarm goes off. I get out of bed. I make a cup of coffee, and I, and I go do my early morning reading. And, and then I, I, when I finish that, I go take a shower uh, and, and get ready to go to the office. But even when I'm putting on my clothes, because I don't want to go naked to the office, I put on my clothes, I do it the same way. And what I mean by that is my left leg always goes into my pants first, not my right leg. If I were to put my right leg in first, I'd probably fall over. Is that hitting home with anyone? Yeah. Okay. I, I, I didn't think I was, you know, OCD strange on that. You know, it's just that it's not right. It feels foreign for some reason. I've had to do it a time or two, especially with my surgeries that I've had. And it's like, that just feels wrong. It just does. Uh, before I leave the house to go to work, I have one more ritual. I, I, I give my wife a hug and a kiss, and I tell her that I love her. And, and if I don't 
carry out that ritual, I'll hear about it. It's happened before. It's like, hey, you didn't give me a hug and kiss and tell me you love me before you went to the office today. And I'm like, you were asleep on the couch. I mean, I didn't want to wake you up. Uh, if she's laying there heavily sedated by drugs, she would know whether <laughs> I hugged and kissed her and said, I love you. So I'd do it regardless. Uh, she may be snoring. I'm still doing it because I will... Uh, hear about it if I don't. But you know, that particular ritual has value. It does. It it has value because it's one of the ways that I can say to my wife that I love you. But you know, the truth is that ritual could become of no value if I I stop loving her. If I stop loving her and I still went through the, the motions, the motions don't really mean anything, do they? Well, if you were to ask Martin Luther, one of the important leaders of the Reformation, he would tell you that there's an immense difference between ritual and reality. Ritual and reality. He trained in a monastery and taught theology for several years before he came to the realization that he was very religious but not righteous. He acquired his doctor of theology six years, six years before he finally understood that he needed to trust in Christ alone to receive a right relationship with God. I mean, he was caught up with rituals and did not have the reality of a right relationship with God through Christ. He sought to work for his salvation by keeping Uh, observing the monastic rules and by constant confession and even self-mortification where he'd beat himself, bringing blood uh, from his back. It's told that he would fast for days and spend hours and hours each day in confession. However, he was only religious and not right with God until he understood that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. If you were to speak with John Wesley, he would inform you that there is a vast distinction between religion and salvation or religion and a right relationship with God. And that may, name may not be as familiar with you, but John Wesley was one of the founders of the Methodist uh, denomination or, or faith. He was raised in a deeply religious uh, family. His father was a minister, and his mother is very well known in Christian circles for spiritual influence on their 19 children. That doesn't even shock you. 19 children. Uh, he received his BA and his MA from Christ Church, Oxford. He was both a student of logic and religion, and yet by his own testimony later on, he was not a Christian at the time. He had what he called a religious conversion in 1725, and at that time he decided to make religion the business of his life. He was ordained as a deacon, taught at Lincoln College, Oxford, served as a clergyman, and even as a missionary to Georgia in the United States, but still only had ritual and religion and not the reality of a right relationship with God. It was not until 
1738 when he was confronted by the Moravian preacher Peter Bowler who exhorted him to trust Christ alone for salvation that John Wesley had what he would later call his evangelical conversion. Hopefully you're seeing the connection between the video clip and that young man growing up in a church, growing up, you know, having prayed a prayer, believing he was a Christian, and yet not knowing God, not having a right relationship with God. I think there are a few things that can be so positive and negative at at the same time as religion and, and its rituals. James, in fact, wrote of pure and undefiled religion in James 1.27. And that's a kind of religion which is motivated from a loving heart and desires to seek to minister to people who are in need, particularly in James, he says, widows and orphans. On, on the other hand, there's the kind of religion that is one of Satan's greatest deceptions For it leads people into believing that they are saved or have a right relationship with God when in fact they stand condemned before God. It's kind of religion that is man's best effort to please God is the self-righteous attitude that assumes that I can appease God on the basis of my own good works. As long as my good works exceed my sins, I'll be okay. This is a type of religion that fills a person's life with all kinds of rituals, but not the reality of a right relationship with God. Really, it is a trick. It tricks people into believing that if they will only perform certain things, certain rituals in the name of God, they will be safe and secure from his judgment, his wrath that is coming. And this is the issue that Paul addresses in his argument here in Romans chapter 2 that shows that people remain condemned before God, whether they are immoral, pagan, unbelieving idolaters, or they are self-righteous, very religious people. And he will demonstrate that you may be religious and at the same time very unrighteous. And this is the message that is not only for the lost to hear, It is intended to reach lost people, definitely, but it serves as a warning to believers who are caught up in a lifestyle that is filled with all kinds of rituals but are lacking in a meaningful, right relationship with God on a day-by-day basis. And the truth is most approaches to understanding the Christian life focuses in on the central ingredient of effort. Effort. So whether our problem is doing things that we know we shouldn't do or not doing the things that we know we should do, completely surrendering ourselves to God, the bottom line solution tends to be try harder, right? Try harder. If you're struggling with temptation, try harder. If you uh, need to be better at reading your Bible, you know, through through the try harder. If you're not the wife or the husband that you should be, try harder. If you know you should be better at obeying the speed limit, try harder. If you are too often allowing your emotions to rule in your decision making, 
try harder. That's right. Consequently, what do we do? Well, we focus on activities that uh, we may call rituals. We may not use that term, but that's what they become to us, believing that they will give us the kind of Christian experience that we're looking for. But shouldn't we desire to be a different kind of person? Not just someone whose behavior patterns and biblical knowledge you know, are commendable. I mean, the truth is cosmetic surgery is not sufficient to meet our need here. We should want to do more, for example, than to teach our children uh, you know, what is expected of them and then give them a list of rules to follow. We should want the example of our lives. That was always Carol and I's desire. The example of our lives would draw them to faith in Jesus Christ and into a relationship with God. We should desire to do more than merely control our tendency toward sin. What do we need to do? We need to leave sin behind. Why? Because we love God. And these kinds of changes can be accomplished not by trying harder only by being changed from the inside out through the gospel and the Holy Spirit's presence will we begin to experience the kind of life that God wants for us that will bring him glory. So in our text today, Paul's going to deal with this way of thinking, the religious way of thinking. And in particular, in the text, he's doing with a religious do. Uh, Jew, the straw man that he has set up, and he will show certain certain things about his life. First, he's going to show his professions, what he says about himself. Second, he will essentially prosecute him for his sins. And then thirdly, he will give certain principles that relate to rituals, which all too often differ from reality. Professions, prosecution, and principles. So, let's run with it. The professions of the religious is verses 17 through 20. And again, Paul continues to use the style of diatribe with a proverbial straw man moving to the possessions that would be representative of all Jews, really, who had not come to know Christ. They felt that you know, they had a special standing with God. And there are 11 such professions in these verses. And so I'm not going to do like any acrostic thing. I'm just, they're right there in the verses. I don't need to do anything other than say a few words about them. The first of those is, but if you call yourself a Jew, if you name yourself as more literal, if you name yourself a Jew, so he is addressing Jews and they were proud of it, right? They were proud of it. They gloried in bearing that name. They were physical descendants of Abraham and took great pride in it. So to be a member of Abraham's race was to enjoy the promises and the covenants that God had made with Abraham initially, then with Moses, and then with David, and so on. It was to have the benefits and the blessings of those covenants. And, and Paul would have understood their sentiment entirely because he would have felt the same way before he met Jesus on the road to Damascus. And, and we see this profession 
addressed by both Jesus and Paul, not only Paul here, but elsewhere as well. So in Matthew 3 and verse 9, Jesus, you know, is, is talking and, and he says, Do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able to, from these stones, to raise up children for Abraham. It's like you, you, you're, you're counting on the fact that you're physical descendants of Abraham. God could raise up from these stones people to replace you. It's not a matter of just being a physical descendant. John 8.33 confronting the Pharisees and, and they answered him. This is what they said. We are offspring of Abraham and we've never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free. Jesus just said, if you follow me, you'll be free, and the truth will set you free, and you'll be free indeed. What are you talking about? We've never been enslaved. We're Abraham's children, right? Bear the name. Genesis, or Galatians chapter 2 and verse 15, Paul is uh, addressing Philip's hypocrisy when Jews from Jerusalem came to Galatia and Peter pulled away from the Gentiles and began to eat the Jewish food again. And Paul's hammering him, gets in his face is what it says in the text. But in verse 15 says, we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. That gave the, the Jewish mindset. We're Gentiles. I mean, we're Jews. We bear the name Jew. We're special people. We're not like those Gentile sinners. Revelation 2.9 Jesus speaking to the churches in chapter 2 and 3, and he says, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. <laughs> they bore the name Jew. They were proud of it, he says. Second profession, rely on the law. They put their confidence in the fact that they possessed the law of God, that, that God had given through Moses, the great lawgiver, the special revelation given only to God's chosen people. And their national, national identity was inextricably bound up in the Mosaic legislation. I think that not unlike our national identity is often associated with the Constitution, right? For them, it was the Mosaic Law. Rely on the law. Third, boast in God. You boast in God, he says. The nation of Israel had pride. They, they gloried in their covenantal relationship with the Lord. They considered themselves as God's chosen people and that no other nation would ever have such a privilege. They boasted in their relationship with God. Next, you know his will. So God had revealed his will to them in a way that he had not with any other people. How did he do that? Well, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament, written by Moses. They knew his plans and his purposes for them and exactly what was expected of them. That does not say that they did what was expected. But they said, we know his will. Next, they approve what is excellent. He, this is the profession, again, of this straw man. 
And this phrase refers to the ability to distinguish between that which is right or wrong or good and evil or that which is essential and that which is non-essential. So the Jew was able to distinguish the most delicate shades of the moral life which were found in the law. And their schools actually excelled in dissecting the scriptures and then declaring what was good and evil. You know, they had, um, I can't remember the exact number, uh, 500 and some commands, well beyond the Ten Commandments or the other laws that got to get. And a greater percentage were negative rather than positive. They dissected the law and wrote about it and uh, taught it in their schools. And then the next profession instructed from the law. So Jewish people grew up being instructed by their parents and by rabbis. The in-depth lessons and the regular reading of the law in the synagogue, they did that every year, read through the law, provided every Jew with deep instruction in the scripture. So self-righteous Jews, self-righteous religious Jews were convinced that they were superior to other people groups, other nations, And the next four professions should be taken together and suggest how they saw themselves, particularly in contrast with the Gentiles. First of all, they were a guide to the blind. A guide to the blind. Did you know that there is no one who is quite so blind as those that think that they see everything clearly? Right? God forbid us from thinking that way. That we are the knower of it all. We see everything clearly. Rather, we should see, as Paul said, now we see in a mirror darkly. <laughs> then, when we get face to face, we'll know perfectly at that time. But they would consider themselves a guide to the blind. And Jesus was brutally confrontative with the Pharisees. He called them blind guides. Uh, Matthew twenty three sixteen says, Woe to you, blind guides, who say, If anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing, but if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. <laughs> blind guides. He says it again in 23, 24 of Matthew. You blind guides, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. Jesus could be pretty brutal at times. And he was still the most meek person ever, right? So meekness is a weakness, and meekness is not, you know, giving in every time. No, no. Meekness was actually controlling yourself with power, controlling your words, and he did. They saw themselves as a guide to the blind. Secondly, a light for those who are in darkness. So instead of being a light to those living in the darkness, that's what God wanted them to be, by the way. You can see it in Isaiah where it's prophesied about the nation. You'll be a light to the nations. Not only would the Messiah be that, but God wanted that for his special people. But instead of being a light to those who who lived in the darkness of paganism, as they should have been, they had withdrawn They had withdrawn themselves from other cultures entirely. In their thinking, the less contact with pagans, the better. They saw themselves as an instructor of the foolish and a teacher of children. Those clearly go together. So the Jews, 
uh, to the Jews, the Gentiles were foolish people. They were wise people, but the Gentiles were foolish people who were like little children, little baby children devoid of spiritual perception. They, of course, were the only ones who could give the instruction. But the truth is, they didn't desire to share the instruction with other people. They were perfectly satisfied to leave them in the darkness as fools who deny the existence of God. Jewish self-righteousness resulted from a basic misunderstanding of what it meant to have received the blessings of being covenant people to whom God had given his law. And it is true, as Paul says in, the, in, in this last verse of this first section here, that they had the embodiment of knowledge and truth. But such knowledge and truth was intended to be shared. It was intended to be shared with others and not held over others, right? Which is what they did, those who had no knowledge or truth. God's special revelation given to them was never intended to be used for self-fulfillment, self-aggrandizement, you know, lifting up oneself in pride or feeling better than others. They fell short. They fell short of God's purpose of being a light to the Gentiles. So the description that Paul gives in these professions, I want you to think about it with me for a second. It's clearly talking about the self-righteous Jew, right? All these professions dealt with the self-righteous Jew. And so you might think, well, I'm not a self-righteous Jew. I'm not even a Jew. So what, why do we even have to go over this? Because it has application for us. It certainly does. You know, Paul's directly addressing these self-righteous religious Jews, but it's not unlike others in our own day, in our own world. And I'm referring there to the profoundly religious people of the Western world, and particularly the United States. Such people also bear a name that they are extremely proud of. What is that name? Christian. Christian. We bear the name Christian. And if you were to ask such people if they have a right relationship with God, they would respond by saying, of course I do. I'm a Christian. They might add to that. I'm a Baptist. I'm a Presbyterian. Or I'm a Lutheran. Or I'm a, you add whatever denomination you want in there, but they would bear that name with pride. And if you were to ask such people, again, if they have a right relationship with God, that's what they would say. It is the bearing of this name that gives them a sense of uh, identification as special people in God's eyes. Special people in God's eyes. Their professions are much the same as the self-righteous Jews as well. They rely on the fact that they are possessors of the gospel message. They, re- they rely on that. They grew up in Christian homes hearing the gospel, that Jesus is the Savior of the world, and he died for their sins. They, too, boast in God. They consider themselves as having a special relationship with God, not unlike the pagan unbelievers that are surrounding them. They know the will of God because... Hey, they own a Bible. In fact, they might own several translations of the Bible. And since they own a Bible, they perhaps, you know, 
think of themselves as those who are able to approve what is right or wrong or truth or error or what is essential or non-essential. They can discern those kinds of things. They would tell you that they have been instructed in the scriptures since childhood. They grow up in a church and they went to Sunday school. They attended church pretty much every time the doors were open. And hey, they even have some perfect attendance pins that they keep in storage. They too are confident that they are a guide to the blind, a a light to those who are in darkness, a, a corrector of the foolish and a teacher of the immature. They think that way. And, and they might even, you know, teach a Sunday school class or lead a life group or, you know, they'll, they'll go to Christian concerts and they'll serve in some ministry somewhere. They, they are confident of all these things because they know that they have the embodiment of all knowledge and truth in the Bible. But the question remains whether you are considering the self-righteous Jew or the self-righteous religious person who claims to be a Christian, is this person saved? Is this person in a right relationship with God? Has he or she been delivered from the wrath of God? Uh, he or she probably thinks so. In fact, they they would have no doubt about it. I mean, with all the professions that they could make about their lives, there's no question in their mind that they would be exempt from the wrath of God because they are so much better than those non-religious, irreligious, pagan unbelievers who are so very wicked. Is that true? They are exempt from God's wrath? No, it's not true. In fact, what Paul is saying is that they are still under the wrath of God because they're trusting in religion and ritual rather than having a right relationship with God through grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And so Paul, in the next verses, 21 through 24, is going to bring a prosecution against, against the religious a prosecution. And it is at this point, really, in his diatribe that he begins to, you know, just lay it on the straw man, the self-righteous religious person. And what he identifies about this person is that he is merely religious. He's, He's got all these rituals, but he doesn't have the reality of a right relationship with God. And Paul's sudden shift, I think it's striking. It really is. He goes on the attack. He assails the religious person who is proud in his possessions. And he does so with four rhetorical questions and then two, uh, a final statement that is really two-part. So four, everyone know what a rhetorical question is, right? The answer is understood. You don't really have to give the answer. It's understood. So Paul does that. And the first question is, again, right out of the scripture, you teach others, do you not teach yourself? You teach others, do you not teach yourself? That is intended to clearly state that the Jew did not practice what he taught, what he preached. You know, their motto quite likely would have been, do as I say, not as I do. And Jesus himself told the disciples the, this word about them. 
Do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do. For they preach, but they do not practice. That was Matthew 23 and verse 3. So this was characteristic of the self-righteous Jew. And the second question, while you preach against stealing, do you steal? And that outright accuses them of theft, doesn't it? The answer is clear. The Jews were actually infamous for using false weights and measures in their business dealings with people. They cheated them. How did they do that? Well, they had one set of weights that they would use for incoming product and a slightly different set of weights for what they would pay out for that product. They would do it on the sly, but they were robbing people all the same And even in temple worship, they cheated people. They robbed people, overcharging them when they needed to uh, purchase an animal to sacrifice in temple worship or exchanging the money because you had to have special temple money to purchase that overcharged animal. So they would rob them two times in the exchange rate and in the purchase of the animals. They were known for this. Third question. You who say that one must commit adultery, must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? And this is pointing out the adulterous practices of the straw man, right? The self-righteous religious Jew. They abhorred the, the pagan, uh, pagans for their sexual perversions, like in chapter 1, right? And, and the adulterous sexual practices in the temple where they'd have temple prostitutes, to carry out their worship of the false gods. They abhorred that. The self-righteous Jews, however, he says, had lust in their heart all the same, and they were committing adultery. Just like Jesus said, you've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say it to you, if you lust in your heart after a woman, you've already committed adultery in your heart. And if, if that's not what it's talking about, well, then it's, it's talking about their practice of divorcing their wives for any small thing like burning the toast or, you know, not keeping the house clean enough or, you know, not being a good hostess when people came over. It's like, I got to get a new wife, got to get one better, divorce her. And Jesus talked about that too, didn't he? He said that marriage is permanent and, and what God has brought together, let no man separate. And, and in fact, if you divorce your wife for any other reason outside of sexual fornication, sexual immorality, then you actually cause her to commit adultery because she's going to marry someone because she can't be on her own. And so you who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? Yes, they did. The fourth question, you abhor, abhor idols. Do you rob temples? That accuses the Jewish straw man of idolatry, of idolatry in acts of robbing temples. But, you know, what does that mean? It's kind of, uh, in a sense, unknowable. There's not a lot that I could find out about what Paul means here. It could be that he is uh, suggesting that Jews would go to foreign or uh, pagan temples and actually steal statues that then they would sell. Or, you know, it, it, it was all about profit for them. Or, or the practice of Jews who would actually sell idols to Gentiles and make a profit. He's saying, you're, you're, you're just as much of an idolater as those pagan Gentiles. 
And then the final two statements sum up all that went before. First, he says, you, you who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. You dishonor God by breaking the law. Those he is addressing, addressing boasted in God, verse 17. And now, he says, they boast in the law. They saw the law of God's, uh, as God's supreme gift given to them. And to disobey it was to dishonor God. But that is exactly what Paul is accusing them of doing. Dishonoring God by breaking the law. And as he has been insisting all along, it is one thing to possess the law. It is something entirely different to keep the law. Kind of like the reservation. You can make the reservation, but you don't keep the reservation. You Seinfeld people will get that. You can have the law, you can own the Bible, but if you don't keep it, it's entirely different. And in addition to his accusation of them dishonoring God through breaking the law, he he indicts them for uh, their sin by speaking of the results that it had in the unbelievers' lives, the Gentiles' lives. Notice that. For it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Wow. Now that's probably taken from Ezekiel chapter 36, a couple of verses 20 and 23. Let me read those to you. This is when uh, the, the children of Israel in exile because of their sin of idolatry and all their disobedience to God. And this is kind of a commentary on that. But when they came to the nations, wherever they came, they profaned my holy name in that the people said of them, the Jews, these are the people of the Lord, and yet they had to go out of his land. Their exile was a, you know, a result of their sin, even though they were the Lord's people. What did they do? They mocked, they blasphemed the Lord themselves. And then verse 23, it says, And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, and which you have profaned among them. The Jews had profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. So what a stinging rebuke, right? A stinging rebuke for this self-righteous religious Jew who professed so much but failed to live up to what he professed about himself. And likewise, what a strong warning for those who have been relying on being raised in a Christian family or trusting and being members of a church. And, And yet their lives contradict the truth that the gospel changes the person's life. How many times have you heard someone say something like, well, I don't want anything to do with Christians, nothing but a bunch of hypocrites. Well, by the way, it it is true there are hypocrites in churches. In some degree, we all do not live up to what we profess, but You know, that is a common expression by unbelievers. People all over this world blaspheme and mock the name of God because of the sinful behavior of those who claim to be Christian, Christ followers, and yet they demonstrate an attitude of superiority over those that don't know God. It's like, we're better people than you are. Who'd want to be part of that group? The name of the Lord is over and over again profaned by unbelievers as a result of 
preachers and television preachers and teachers who have been caught with their hand in the till, so to speak, or they've been caught in sexually immoral relationships and, and many other such sins that they themselves continually rail against in their sermons. And then they're caught doing the same thing. Causes the name of the Lord to be blasphemed among unbelievers. You know, such things that have led God's name to being blasphemed by unbelievers is an indication that those preachers or teachers, uh, Christians, are not what they claim to be. They're actually not what they profess to be. They, like the self-righteous Jew, do not really know God. They have never come into a right relationship with God through faith in Christ Jesus because all along they've been trusting in something else, religion and rituals, rather than in having a right relationship with God through the sacrificial death of the Son of God. You say, well, all of them are that way? No, listen, believers sin. I think many of those preachers and teachers have been caught that way are not believers. They're liars. They're deceivers. They're in it for what they can put in their pocketbook or give them power over others. But certainly there are those that just fall into sin, right? We can all fall into sin. And, and even us who truly know God through faith in Christ, we must consider whether our sinful attitudes and actions are causing the name of the Lord to be blasphemed among unbelievers. We should consider that. Maybe our lives do not reflect the new life God has given us through his Son, or, or it doesn't reflect the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit who wants to lead us in a life that glorifies God. And if that is true, let us repent. Let us repent. Let us submit ourselves entirely to the Holy Spirit and his leading in our lives. Let us not try harder, but be better. Because the best is being done in us through God who is working his will, his will and way in our lives. Let us not rely on doing certain rituals to make us feel good about ourselves, but rather let us focus on building a right relationship with God each and every day as we rely on him who is faithful and we'll finish what he has started. Well, we'll end there and we'll pick up with the last part of chapter 2. Um, next time I'm preaching, that's going to be probably three or four weeks. I'm not sure yet, but the joy is Pastor Greg will be going into uh, the Sermon on the Mount again. So um, aren't you thankful for this truth? I, I hope that you're thankful. Again, I've said it multiple times that this is, this, these are hard words. <laughs> but they are hard words that need to be known, even by us believers, because we need to know how to share with unbelievers how they can have a right relationship with God. And that involves pointing out sin. If we do not point out sin and we just say, hey, God wants you to have a better life than what you've had, How's that going to bring them into a right relationship with God? It's not. We may even get them to say a prayer. 
but that prayer would just be bouncing off the ceiling because unless you repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you cannot be saved. And what would you repent of if you don't understand that you're a sinner in need of a Savior? So, for me, as we go through this, I'm like, oh, Lord, thank you that though I was such an evil sinner, whether it was in my pagan, immoral, wicked life from my teenage years or my very religious life afterwards and I still was sinning, I thank you that you saved me. And you pointed out to me I needed a Savior. That ought to be coming off of our lips and out of our heart on a regular basis. Thank you that I'm not only a sinner saved by grace, I'm a saint set apart for the, by the grace and for the glory of God. And then, Lord, I want to know more about how to share with those that don't know you. Help me to be brave, courageous, bold, in sharing the truth of the gospel, the full gospel, so that others can be welcomed into the kingdom of God, can be adopted by God into his family, that he might receive glory and honor through it. So, Lord, we are thankful for this time together this morning as we've done some singing and praise of who you are as we've remembered, focused in on the sacrifice of Christ for us, as we've opened your word and received uh, truth from you, change us through it. And Lord, we are thankful for the food that we're going to eat together on the other side. Uh, May we see that as one of your kindnesses shown to us, particularly here in the United States where we have such an abundance. And we thank you for those that uh, put it together for us. So all praise and glory and honor be to you, Lord. Amen.